Last week was our Faith Promise Commitment Sunday, uh, where we, in faith to God's commitment to provide for the gospel to go around the world, we, uh, we turn in our commitments for the next 12 months for our kind of fiscal year for missions. And um, so if you weren't here last week or if you've not yet turned that in, um, there's a card. Uh, there should be a card in the little pocket in the seat in front of you. Uh, there's two cards there. One's a connect card and then one says speak Jesus. That's our theme for this year. Um, and so we'll talk about the connect card in a little while. But speak Jesus is that card. You can either scan the QR code or you can fill that out every Penny of that commitment goes to get the gospel to the nations, uh, partners both near, uh, here locally in our Jerusalem and to the end of the earth uh, with the ministries that we're partnering with and with our new uh, local vision missions that we just shared. And I share that to say, uh, based on the commitments last week, we're about $1,200 a month short of where we hoped we would be. And so if you were praying about two numbers and you wrote down the small one last week, we just want to give you an opportunity <laughs> so, uh, if you, in all seriousness, if you were praying, man, I, I think maybe the Lord was stretching my faith and I, I wasn't ready to take that step of faith. Um, and if you really do want to increase your commitment, please don't write a new total. Just write the difference because that'll throw our budget way off, right? Uh, so if you were going to give a thousand a month and now you want to give five thousand a month, just write four thousand on the card again and drop that in. I don't know. I just picked that as a round number. Um, but we, we'd encourage you to do that. You can drop those in the offering boxes in the back as you leave today, uh, or you can uh, scan your QR code. That's the only thing you're allowed to be on your phone doing while we're preaching. Uh, you can feel free to fill out your faith promise commitment card, okay? As we're walking through the book of Acts, I shared with you that this is one of my top shelf favorite stories in the whole Bible is Acts chapter 3 and 4. And as I said, that's always a weird admission because that implies that I have least favorite parts of the Bible. And uh, I don't know that I want to admit that publicly, but man, I love this story. And we've talked about already an amazing part of the story, but the best part is, is the part of the text that we're going to get to this morning, in my opinion. The story begins with uh, kind of the, the second scene of this beginning of the thing called ecclesia and peter and john are going to the temple to pray they see a guy who's probably around my age he's over 40 and he's been carried to the temple to beg in order to have food in his belly for his whole life he's never taken a single step on his own he asks peter and john for money they say man we don't have cash on us do you take Apple Pay. <laughs> they said, here's what we do have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he doesn't just rise up. He pops up, right? You see an athlete, you know, football player gets knocked down and you're like, ooh, he's hurt. But he pops back up. This guy, he leaps and begins dancing and leaping in the temple. And, of course, a big crowd gathers and the second recorded sermon ever preached since the filling of the Holy Spirit, this time 5,000 men placed their faith in Jesus, and immediately the religious power structure is threatened again because of this name that is above every name. They arrest them, put them in custody, tell them, don't you dare speak in that name anymore or else. And then we're going to pick the story up. Right after the or else, 
this morning. So grab your Bible if you would. If you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. And as we say this every week, if you don't own a Bible, please let that be our gift to you today. Uh, we want you to take that home. Uh, we'd love for you to keep that. But we're going to hold up our Bibles and say our creed together before we dive in this morning. And so let's declare this with some passion and some conviction today. Here we go. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Please turn to Acts chapter number 4. If you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you, it's page 858. 858. Acts chapter number 4, picking back up in this story That is this incredible story, this incredible boldness. They stood before the Jewish Supreme Court. We talked about this last week. The Sanhedrin and looked them in the eye and said, hey, since y'all are so good at judging, you judge. Should we obey God or obey you? Incredible boldness. At the threat of death, they said, who do you think we should obey, God or you? Incredible boldness. We pick back up this morning and what happens after, after that, verse number 23, when they were released. I want to stop there for a minute. We're, we're going to slow down really through verse number 23. We're going to move a little methodically here, so hang with me, okay? Again, I, and I know I said this last week, I think this is so important to say. Persecution is not this thing that happened way down the line in the story of Ecclesia. We're in Act 1, Scene 2 of the beginning of this thing, and they're released. Like, they got parole. <laughs> like, they got released from imprisonment. This is at the very beginning of the story of the church. Let's not forget that. This is so important. And I want you to think about, we haven't talked about this yet, actually, as, as here we are in the middle of Chapter 4. We haven't really talked about the context of who Jerusalem was at this time in history. The culture of Jerusalem, this is during the, the, the period of Roman occupation. So really it's the culture of the Roman Empire that is infecting the city of God, right? This is the, this is the environment in which the people of God live. Here's the reality of the culture at that time. It was the most powerful political system that had ever existed in human history. It was one of the most wealthy civilizations that had ever existed in human history. People lived with a kind of affluence that their ancestors could not imagine. Does that sound familiar? Wealthy and powerful. They were very open to any and every religion except the story of Jesus. They were proud of their tolerance. They were proud of their diversity, except for Jesus. He freaks us out. Does that sound familiar? It was common. It was acceptable among the culture that they would completely reject what we call biblical sexual ethics. The, the, the boundaries and the guardrails that God has put around human sexuality were completely ignored in this culture. And they thought to abide by that was the most closed-minded, uneducated view of the world you could have. In that culture, it was completely accepted that 
that you would have a bisexual attraction. It was completely accepted that you would say, no, I'm, I'm just same sex attracted. It was completely accepted that marriage was irrelevant. Sexuality wasn't within the bounds of marriage. Marriage wasn't important at all. You lived together before you were married. You had adultery when you were married. Don't bother being married. If you don't want to be married anymore, just end the marriage. Good grief. Does that sound familiar? And they practiced child sacrifice in this culture. One author said it this way. They didn't sacrifice every child. They just killed the children they didn't really want. And here's the thing that was true for them. You can't boldly live for Jesus in that culture and not face persecution. I believe that's true for the people of God today as well. If you're going to live in a culture like that and you're going to truly be sold out, all in, a real follower of Jesus, like not just enough of Jesus to hopefully get to heaven one day. I'm talking a follower of Jesus. I mean, my life is being changed from the inside out by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're going to live that way in that kind of culture, you're probably not going to win the popularity award. Which is why the Apostle Paul would tell Timothy, we talked about this last week, Second Timothy chapter 3, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And if that text was being preached today in American culture, we would say all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be blessed. Right? Will be wealthy? Drive a Bentley with a fish bumper sticker on it? And that's not the teaching of the scriptures. And because I think we're not honest about that, we're shocked when life is difficult. Because we have an unrealistic view of what it costs to follow Jesus when we suffer persecution or even unpopularity. We're dumbfounded. And yet somehow, as the followers of Jesus face this, they're released from prison and they're not like, I can't believe that happened. We don't ever read in the text that anyone was astonished Except the people who heard the story of Jesus. The Sanhedrin was astonished at the authority and boldness with which they spoke. But they weren't astonished that they were there. Does that make sense? And maybe you think, well, we're not persecuted. Right? There's there's Christians actually suffering persecution around the world. We're not persecuted. Here's the thing. Jesus himself told us there's different kinds of persecution. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter number 5, Jesus says, Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you. But there's different kinds of persecution. Sometimes it's just verbal. And then sometimes it's physical. Right? One pastor said it this way. He said there's overt, obvious persecution, and then there's covert Subtle persecution. There's overt persecution when the people of God are thrown to the lions, but there's covert persecution when they're thrown to the critics. There's overt persecution when our faith causes us to die for Christ, but there is covert persecution when we choose to live for Christ in this culture. There's overt persecution where they silence the people of God by killing them. 
And then there's covert persecution when they silence the people of God by canceling them. Or shaming them. Or marginalizing them. Or saying they're a bunch of out of touch, uneducated bigots. And that's, that's the narrative, right? The narrative is we're these backwoods, clueless people who don't believe in science. Like we're so crazy that we think like a being created all of this. What kind of hicks are we? Crazy. The, the, the narrative is, don't you know that Christians hate sex? Don't you know that Christians hate gay people? Don't you know that Christians hate women? Don't you know all of this? No, I don't. <laughs> but we're free game. We're, anything's allowed to be said about those who are followers of Jesus in our culture today. Things that can't be said about any other religion or any other group. There's overt and there's covert persecution, which means if we're going to live a godly life for Christ Jesus in this moment in history, we better grow a Holy Spirit backbone. Like it's time. It's time to stop being so soft. It amazes me when my brothers and sisters in Christ are so offended when unbelievers talk like unbelievers. I can't believe they don't accept my worldview. They're lost. I can't believe Hollywood is putting out sinful things. What? Well, like... I'm scared when Hollywood puts out a Christian movie because I'm like, well, they're going to mess that up. Now, if they're putting out like Wolf of Wall Street, I'm like, yeah, they'll probably get that right. That's their genre. Depravity. The Oscar goes to depraved. Like, we're not supposed to be shocked when they don't align with our worldview. We want to see them come to saving faith in Jesus Christ so he'll regenerate their worldview. And maybe what they do will look different. In the meantime, we live as strangers and aliens. They're released. They come back to the people of God. So one pastor, I was studying this text. He did something really interesting that I, I've never seen done before. He, instead of giving points in the outline, he let the text define some questions for his congregation to consider. I thought it was a great idea. I totally stole it from him. These are probably going to be your community group questions on Wednesday night. So you get like a three-day head start to think about your answers, right? For our Sunday group, y'all get a whole week to think about your answers. Here's the first one. How realistic are we about doing life in a broken world? How realistic are our expectations? How honest are we? Because here's the thing, a ton of Christians that I know and love end up really offended at God that life is broken when he told us it would be broken. We end up upset with God because we had unrealistic expectations about what it's like to be a broken person doing life with broken people in a broken world. You know what that's probably going to feel like? Broken. How honest are we? How realistic are our expectations about living life in a fallen world? Or do we think paradise starts now? Some of the people that, that preach against a prosperity gospel are shocked when life is hard. That means we've subtly believed the lie that give your life to Jesus, everything will be fine. 
That was a long time on the first phrase. We got to speed up. Do I thank you, brother? I love you. Do I expect life to be better than promise? So when they were released, like from jail, here and then next phrase, they went to their friends. I love that, how the ESV renders this. They went to their friends. They did not face difficulty and then go, man, I need to find some friends. They faced difficulty and naturally went back to their Christian community. They didn't have to find one or make one up. They naturally fit into the community they'd already been. Matter of fact, we think they went back to the same room. The actual same place where they had broken bread, where they prayed together, where they experienced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They gathered together with familiar godly friends. And I, I, I watch this happen constantly where someone will show up here and they'll only come on Sunday mornings. They'll come late and leave quick. They won't get to know anyone. They won't join a community group. They don't become members. And then life happens. And they'll come and sit in my office in their brokenness and they'll explain what they think they need in life. And what they're describing is biblical community. And here's the thing. You can't microwave friendships. you got to slow cook them. And so if we're not building friendships on the good days, but we hope they'll show up on the bad days, we have a really unrealistic approach to how life works. The question I would ask with this is not, do you have godly friends? It's, are you pursuing godly friends? Because have is passive. And pursuing is active. It's interesting. I've had people tell me, this church is so friendly. We've made such great friends. Like, I think I'm going to grow old and die knowing these people and what's going on with their kids. And then I've had other people tell me, this church is not very welcoming. Right? What's the difference? Did, did we have a split personality? Did we decide corporately, hey, listen, we don't like Steve Turkett. So... <laughs> Nobody talk to him and maybe he'll leave. No. Jason's like, I like Steve. He's sitting on the edge. That's why I hadn't picked a name. That was in the moment. We love you, Steve. Um, no, what, what was the difference? Almost without exception, the difference is that the person who felt like the church was friendly was friendly. It's almost like... The, that he who has friends must show himself friendly. Right? So if, if it hurts your feelings that no one's ever invited you to lunch after church, here's my recommendation. Invite someone to lunch after church. <laughs> Why do we insist on the universe absorbing around us and then we're mad when it doesn't? Sorry, it's fixed on its axis. And if we'll pursue godly friendships, when the wind isn't blowing, then when the storm hits, we'll go, oh my goodness, I'm not alone. How great is this? I'm just telling you, I would not be here today apart from the community of faith that God's placed me in. 
And I think that's true for all of us. And here's the thing. It is not the, the pastoral paid staff's responsibility to be your buddy. It's our job to be community and be family with one another. And every time I see somebody come like that who doesn't connect and doesn't reach out, and I'm the only person that knows their name or Monica or Lance, the only people, they always end up leaving. So if you want to be here, let's be here. Let's go. What are we waiting on? We don't actually have any rolled red carpet to roll out. Don't be offended that we didn't roll it out for you. We don't have red carpet. We're just trying to make sure our kids don't get arrested tomorrow and do life. Like, let's go. <laughs> we need to talk after church, by the way. <laughs> so if... Although he did get his first speeding ticket a couple weeks ago. Can we just talk about that for a minute? <laughs> no, no. Why did you clap for that? He drives a Subaru. Like... We are never going to get through the text. If your takeaway from this part of the text is, I need more friends, I'd really challenge you with, maybe we need to be more friendly. Am I pursuing godly friendships? Am I pursuing godly friendships? So here's, they're released, because that's what happens to, if you're going to really follow Jesus in a broken culture, you're probably going to get some persecution. They went to their friends, and they reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And that doesn't sound significant to me when I first read it until I think about how I watch most of us do life. Most of us are on a mission to make sure nobody knows that we're struggling with anything until it becomes so big that it breaks us, and then we're like, oh, I do actually need to let somebody in. I love that it was natural that those filled with the Holy Spirit of God pursued Christian community, and then they were honest about what was going on. It doesn't say they complained or whined, (laughs) and it also doesn't say they pretended to be tough. No, they're like, hey, if this is going on in my life, it's natural and healthy that somebody else knows what's going on in my life. There's this complete lie in our culture that those who live open and vulnerable and authentic are somehow like soft or weak or feminine as though that's offensive. And here's the deal. It takes infinitely more courage to be real about your struggles than it does to hide in the corner like a scared little child. It's not... Manly to say, nobody knows what I'm struggling with. Yeah, how's that working out for you, bud? Like, at some point in time, we gotta have enough faith in Jesus that we can be real with his people. Which doesn't mean I put all of my drama on Facebook. I need to clarify that for this generation. That means I've got safe, healthy, godly people who know what's going on in my life. Who really knows you? Who really knows you? Here's another way to ask it. How honest am I living? How open, how vulnerable, how authentic am I living? Because I believe the people of God are free enough to say, 
Here's the real me. Here's what's going on in my life. Verse number 24. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God. Their natural response when they suffered together and they were doing life together and they shared that together was to pray together. They did not schedule a prayer meeting. They just prayed. Like it, it was the natural overflow of if I believe God's who he says he is, we'll talk about that in a minute, then why would we not pray for these things together? The, the question is this. Who am I praying for, for real, and who is praying for me? For real. Like not keep them safe, Right? Not God, please don't let him get COVID, right? We've been praying that for two years. Do you know two years ago this Sunday was the first Sunday we went to online services? Thank you, Jesus, that we're together this morning. Who's really praying for us? And who are we really praying for? And here's what I would say. We do all of these things that I just described in community groups. We foster opportunities for friendships. That's why there's like snacks and hey, how's life? We share what's going on and we pray for each other. And I've had people tell me, I don't want to go to community group because I don't want to hear what's going on in other people's lives. I don't want to hear them whine about it. Yikes. I get frustrated when I don't know what's going on in y'all's lives. I just had a conversation with somebody. He's like, hey, I'm interviewing for a job. I'm like, sweet, I can pray for you now. That's exciting to me. To hear what's going on in somebody else's life means, sweet, I believe God loves you and hears prayers for you. Like, if we believe that, then isn't it normal and natural we would care enough for one another? And here's what they said when they prayed. Sovereign Lord. Not man upstairs, or let's give prayer a try. Sovereign. Do you hear the weight of that word? Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. That's how sovereign he is. He's the source of everything. Sovereign Lord. It's actually a little bit redundant to call him Sovereign Lord. The the word Lord in this text is is the Greek word despotos. Like despot. Like like dictator. It's not a good word. That's how authoritative he is. We serve a God who did not get elected He did not win the popular vote or the electoral college. God bless you. He doesn't run a poll to find out how we feel about him. He's God. And here's the thing. I don't think they determined in this moment that God was sovereign. If I try to define sovereignty when I'm in the midst of suffering, it's going to be really difficult to see the magnitude of God. Does that make sense? Like it's a whole lot better to determine that God's in control when you're experiencing something good in life. 
Because if you don't determine how big your God is, you're going to face a big problem. And you might have such a small theology, you'll think your mountain is bigger than your God. And so today, right now, people of God, let's just tell ourselves that the reason we sing these songs and come back to God's word is we need to reconnect our view of the magnitude, of the authority, of the sovereignty of our God. We don't have a circumstance problem. Some of us, we have a theology problem. We've got a little small reactionary God who's going, "Uh uh-oh, oops, oh no, That's not what I believe about God. I believe he's sovereign. All the way sovereign. And I've shared this plenty of times. When I was a freshman, maybe a sophomore in Bible college, I had this professor, and we're discussing the sovereignty of God. And this is what he said. He said, sovereign is one of those words that has no measurements. And he said this. He said, boys, either God's sovereign or he's not. There's no in-between. Like he's all the way God or he's not God at all. Right? Their theology drove their hope. We believe in a God who rules and reigns. And then they quote from Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2, written about a thousand years before then. (laughs) And they're later going to talk about the execution of Jesus And use language like whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. We don't believe any of this has taken you by surprise because we believe you are God. Life constantly catches me by surprise. And I find so much comfort in the fact that it's never surprised my God. Here's what I would say. I I would ask you this. What... (laughs) Don't answer this one out loud. What's the worst day you've ever experienced? What's the worst moment you've ever lived through? And where was God that day? We ask that question sometimes when life goes sideways. Where's God? We never ask that when we get the raise. We only ask that when we lose our job. Where's God? And I would submit to you, where's God is a great question. It just can't be the first question. The first question is, who is God? You know what my answer is? He's God. Well, what is God? He's sovereign. Now let's answer, where is God? He's on his throne. There's not a single circumstance or failure or success that can knock him off of his throne. Throughout the scriptures, there's this language of him being seated on his throne because that signifies authority. Kings sit on thrones. CEOs sit in the executive chair. Dad sits at the head of the table. In a university, you have the department chair. They're the one in charge. Well, here's the chair for our God. It's the throne above every other throne. He's God. He rules and reigns. So, 
Here's the next question. How God is your God? Like on a scale of 1 to 10. How God is your God? For real. Like right now while life's good, before the cancer diagnosis, how God is your God? Because I believe the answer is, he's all the way. He's all the way, God. When, when I feel like life is out of control, I, I, I struggle with control. When I feel like someone else is in control and my circumstances are not good, it makes me crazy. Or when, when just a circumstance, it's not from someone's hand, but there's this thing I can't fix. It's the hardest part of being a parent. There's so much I can't control that could harm my kids. It is in control. And so then I try to pretend to be sovereign. I shall control this and everything will be worse. (laughs) And here's the reality. I don't know what your situation is, but they are not in control. It is not in control. You are not in control. The sovereign Lord rules and reigns, and he's got you. Verse 25. This sovereign Lord, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. We won't spend a whole lot of time here. But here's the question this morning. And i got two questions here. The first one is as obvious as I intended to be. Who wrote your Bible? David? Or the Holy Spirit of God? Who wrote your Bible? Do you believe the creed? The Bible is the word of God. Not the words of men. The word of God. Do we believe that? Who wrote your Bible? Then here's the logical next question. What's your relationship with God's word? Because if we believe (laughs) this is God's word, then I would ask you, what's your relationship like with it? I believe God's word. I'd die for that. I haven't read it in six months, but man, I'm telling you, I'm glad somebody else talks about it and studies it. If you are living off of my leftovers from God's word, you are starving yourself from what God has offered you. If what you're getting from God's word is what other people have gleaned from it, you're living on less than what this word offers you through the power of the Holy Spirit. If we believe this is the living, breathing, alive word of God, then let's feast on it together. Amen. If we believe it is what we say we believe, are we living like it? And then they quote from Psalm 2, beginning of, of the second Psalm. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. I love that they're quoting that text because they're acknowledging We were just arrested, and it's not about us. They set themselves against you, God. 
They set themselves against your anointed one, your son. For truly in this city that were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants peace and safety. So I told you the best part of the story to me is the part we were going to get to today. This is it. They stood before the Sanhedrin and they looked at the Pharisees. Remember I talked about this last week? They said, hey, you killed him. And then they appointed the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the resurrection, and said, and God raised him from the dead. And there's salvation in no other name, so we're not going to stop preaching about him. I've never had a single moment of boldness that strong in my entire life. And the first thing they did after that incredible boldness is they came back together with the people of God and asked for more boldness. They didn't ask for safety. They didn't ask, they, they did not consult with legal counsel. How can we preach Jesus and not get in trouble next time? Right? They didn't do any boycotts against the Sanhedrin because they didn't endorse their worldview. They asked for more boldness. That's incredible. When's the last time you asked God for more boldness to speak the name of Jesus to a hurting and broken world? God, give us boldness. People with more boldness than I've ever seen said, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They never once prayed for safety, for comfort. Lord, just give us traveling mercies. What does that even mean? Traveling mercies. You live one mile from the church. Traveling mercies is... You ever thought about that? Here's the thing about mercy. You know, the theological definition for mercy is God withholding punishment that we deserve. And when I think about the way I drive, I really do actually need traveling mercies. Easy. My wife just amen. No, they prayed for more boldness. But I want you to notice what the boldness was for. They did not say, God, make us more bold so that we can get our way. They said, God, give us more boldness so that we can speak the name that is above every name. To speak. We've said this a couple times now already in the book of Acts. Doing good good deeds in the name of Jesus will never get you in trouble. Caring for the widows and orphans will not get you in trouble. Giving warm thoughts for the Ukraine will not get you in trouble. Helping those who are homeless or hurting or struggling with addiction. And help those people out. But then proclaim that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. And all of a sudden you're a crazy person. 
they prayed that they would speak with boldness. Which if you remember, that's the first verse of this book. Luke addresses this historical rendering to Theophilus and he says, I have dealt with all the things that Jesus began to do. Sweet, we love when Jesus raises the dead. And teach, which demands a response. God grant us to speak with all boldness, to lift up our voice and to speak. And so here's the question I would ask you. Who in your life does Jesus want you to speak his name with some boldness? Who has God brought into your orbit who needs somebody to speak with some boldness the name of Jesus? Not to speak with brashness and rudeness. To speak with gentle boldness. Spirit-filled boldness. I want you to look at what the Spirit does. Verse 30. While you stretch out your hand to heal... And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So again, this is not about us or by us or for us. It's all done by him. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And yes, I'm so old school. I believe that means the place was physically visibly shaken. Pictures fell off the walls. I don't know if they had pictures on the walls. Like, shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And guess what they did? They continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. When the place was shaken by the Spirit of God, they were no longer shaken by persecution. The more the place was shaken, the less the people were shaken. Like, God, give us boldness. Rattle the stuff in my life that needs to be rattled because I need a fresh dose of Holy Spirit boldness. When Jesus was crucified, there was an earthquake. And when Jesus raised from the dead, there was an earthquake. And then right here in this passage, where they're asking for boldness to talk about his crucifixion and resurrection, there was another earthquake. God shook the place with power. And I don't, we just finished painting and stuff. Like, I'm not praying for an earthquake today. But I do believe God needs to shake some of us awake. I do believe he needs to rattle our cage. To shake us out of complacency and passivity and cowardness and self-centered living and silence. And shake us with some boldness in the Holy Spirit. Because I believe with all my heart, that's the hope of the world. The hope of the world is not that the clergy will be more articulate in the story of Jesus. The hope of the world is that regular men and women and boys and girls would have an irregular feeling of the Holy Spirit with irregular power and irregular boldness to preach the name of Jesus. 
The hope of the world is not that you might grow enough boldness to invite your coworker to come hear me talk about Jesus. The hope of the world is that over a cup of coffee, you would tell your coworker, I met Jesus and he changed my life. And the hope of the ecclesia of Jesus, persevering in a culture opposed to the story of Jesus, is not that the people on stages will say things the right way. It's that people of God will grow a Holy Spirit backbone in His power and continue to speak the name of Jesus in their orbit, in their circle of influence, beginning in their homes, their communities their workplaces, their families, and their friendships. That's the hope of the world. And what I want more than anything in the whole world is for God to shake us. And notice this, not so that they felt better about the persecution. (laughs) We want, yes, God, shake me with your power so that I can live more comfortably. No, God, shake me with your power so that you might proclaim the name of your son through me, little old me. If you don't know, if you're a guest today, my oldest brother is a disaster relief missionary. He's in transition now working with some Haitian refugee camps in the Dominican Republic. But his years of disaster relief has been interesting for me to watch. Because when God structures a person who does that disaster relief, he builds the opposite of me in every way. Like, not only can I not fix anything, I don't run towards storms. Like, storm chaser? No, I'm good. Where's the bomb shelter? I'm that chaser. But because God has gifted my brother that way, I've watched the effects of storms. My wives, my wife and I have, my wives. So this morning in the spirit of authenticity, I have something to share. Dear God, no, please don't. Not more than one. I just signed up for that. Okay. Um. My wife and I and our son, Garrett was little at the time, drove to the Gulf Coast after Katrina to go visit my brother, take some supplies. And I remember being so shocked the closer we got to the coast at billboards that looked like they'd been put in a blender. They were circular. Trees that looked like something out of a Doctor Who book. Here's the thing. Really strong winds always leave a mark. There's always evidence that that wind has blown. That strong wind of the Spirit that blew in in Acts chapter 2 is just leaving its mark in Acts chapter 4. And man, I pray the same thing might be true in our communities too the wind of the Spirit would blow in such a powerful way that the people of God can't help but live differently. So here's the question. Here's the last question. Do you need to experience 
a move of the power of God in your life? Let me go first. Yes. We want to give you a chance this morning to respond in that way and to pray that simple prayer because I just don't believe that the Spirit is playing hide and seek or hard to get. God, who in my life do I need boldness to speak the name of Jesus? Okay, God, grant me power. Grant me authority. Grant me courage to speak 